Fine, build your napalm. I don't care. See Fine, if I yeah, care. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> happy <laughs> wife, happy life. Let let her make the dirty bomb. Whatever. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Unbelievable, the podcast where I, Baron of Mid-Missouri, first of his name, Kurt Danner, tell my friend, traveling jester and last of his name, Luis Mejia, two unbelievable stories from history, one of them true, one of them fake. And it's up to me to find out which is which. Did that last of his name get you? I've, I've, been, I've had that one in my pocket for a while because I thought you were going to like that one. I think you've had that in your pocket since you first met me, Kurt. We all know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish my bloodline. <laughs> It's all or nothing. Either you're going to finish your bloodline or it'll be like Genghis Khan where hundreds of years from now they'll be like, you know, 12% of the population is actually related to Luis Mejia. Only time will tell. Only time will tell. Anyway, on that note, I got two stories that I am very excited to tell you. But first, Luis, you got a little fast fact for me to test out the waters. See if you can get one over on me before I bring my whole smoke and mirror show for you. All right. You're talking a big game already, Kurt. But yes, I do have a fast fact. A little fun fact for you. So, Kurt, there, there are some traditions around the world, especially regarding things as new cycles, new years, and things of the sort, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I must ask you, Kurt, true or false, does the color of the underwear you're wearing on New Year's Day impact how that specific year is going to play out for you? Okay, this is interesting. So I know that there's things that have weird correlation, like the age of uh, Miss Universe winners and the bee population or something, like track similarly. <laughs> there's a Nick Cage movies and Deaths by Shark. Yeah, stuff like that. <laughs> okay, so there might be some kind of correlation like that, but I would not say that it's impacting it. I'm actually excited to hear how it might possibly be impacting your year, but I'm going to say false. I think that that is false. It has no impact on how your year will go. Well, you know what, Kurt? I would say you are right. However, you're you're right in assuming that there are some weird correlations with that. Uh, especially in this case, it relates to a very specific Latin American traditions for New Year's Day. Mm. Okay, so there's a there's a New Year's Day tradition in Latin America, and I think Spain also. One of them being uh, you eat twelve grapes at midnight to represent the twelve months that just passed or the twelve months that are coming. You eat twelve grapes. That's a big one. But another one is to choose carefully what color underwear you are wearing at the beginning of the year. And depending on what color underwear you are wearing, that will be a bit of an omen, a bit of a uh, prediction of how your year will go. Mm. All right. Now, let me give you some of the colors, the meanings of some of the colors that uh, you can wear during New Year's. All right, Kurt, and I'm going to quiz you on this one. Okay. If you are wearing red underwear on New Year's Eve, what will that bring your year? Mm, good luck. No, that's not it. That's bad. Well, uh, yeah, you're wrong. It helps to attract love and also passion. Oh, I should have known that. Okay, now here's another chance. Yellow underwear, Kurt. What will that bring for your year? Okay, this one is good luck or perhaps also money. Financial success. You are very correct, Kurt. It can attract prosperity, money, and abundance. Yeah. Is what yellow underwear abundance, will bring. Baby. Now, white underwear, Kurt. Mm, um, grass stains. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a little bit more more common more common than than these predictions. But it it could be grass stains or also peace, hope, health, and harmony. Mm, those are good too. What about black underwear, Kurt? Hmm perseverance, determination? Uh, no. Well, firstly, it would be an underwear that you don't have to wash that often because you can't really see it. No so, grass you know, stains. That's clever. Zero no grass, grass stains. stains. Zero grass stains. But also, it represents luxury, power. Also, 
it supposedly will help you wake your sexuality up if you're wearing black not the underwear. red ones wow okay no well okay. the red ones are for love and the black ones are for lust ah ooh, okay <laughs> and, and and anyway there's just a bunch of different colors that you should be wearing in your underwear to greet the new year mm. uh, so hopefully next new year's that you get to celebrate you start up the year with that and mm -hmm. you know what kurt this is our first podcast of 2023 of this brand new year. What color are you wearing on our first podcast of this year? And this will determine how our podcast will go. Let's see. What do we got under the hood? Uh, I'm wearing blue underwear. What does blue get me? All right, Kurt. Uh, blue underwear is related with rationality and balance, and it proves that projects get finished on time. <laughs> I'm totally well, serious. Well, that'll be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, I'm currently wearing black underwear, Kurt, so Ooh. you better watch out, baby. I'm feeling Ooh. good. <laughs> <laughs> so now we know that this podcast is going to be one that's going to be well-balanced, very rational, very completed projects, but also very sexy. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, no, I have a question for, for my residential underwear legend expert here. Yep, so me. if if you're a girl and you have, you know, a top and bottom underwear piece, can you wear two different colors on the, the first day of the year and then you get like mm. two things? Because I feel like I don't know if that's fair or do you get like half of each of those things? Is there, you know, what's the word on that? Well, Kurt, let's just uh, real quickly. Uh, the word that you use for underwear in, in Spanish is calzones. And that refers to almost exclusively bottoms mm. as to what you're wearing on your bottoms. You could say uh, your your thongs or your or uh, your your pants, as the British would say. Now, I mean, I don't know, Kurt. Maybe if you're if you're counterbalancing, on the one hand, you're wearing yellow bra and red underwear. I think that's to represent that you might make a lot of money by convincing others to love you. Oh, it combines. Wow. Yeah, maybe it compounds. Wow. But who knows? It's like a whole scientific field here. It really is. I think this is something <laughs> that we can go further into detail, and we might just yeah. go in further yeah, into yeah. detail. But that's that's to 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 get a start. Kurt, on this very good, sexy year for the Unbelievable Podcast. A little cultural enrichment, a little a little education, and a lot of talk about underwear. The promise that this podcast always brings. And you know what? We will deliver. And we will deliver. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, Luis, is it story time? Are you ready for me? God, I've never been more ready for anything in my entire life, Curtis. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to tell you the story of a woman named Amay Germain. Mm. And I will warn you right away that this story, I got to give you a little bit of background in the beginning. Okay. But believe me, we are going to go some wild places. So just stick with me. We're going to get there. Okay. So Amay was actually born Amay Labadou. Ooh. She was born October 16th, 1863 in New Orleans, Louisiana. And 1863 is obviously the middle of the American Civil War. Uh, so Ame the, is born to the Labadou family. The Labadous are one of the families in New Orleans that are recently come over from France. They still are pretty wealthy. And as a lot of families like that did in those times, Ame and her mother were sent to live with relatives in Paris for the mm -hmm. duration of the war. And I'm sure they, they would have great big parties. And whenever they were celebrating, they would yell, Labadabadou! Labadabadou! Wow, you really think that one's going to make the final editing cut? to get in the podcast, Luis? One can dream, Kurt. All right. <laughs> so 
1865, uh, the Civil War officially ends, but this is actually just marking the surrender of the largest number of troops. So there's still okay. scattered Confederate troops out there fighting uh, in the years afterwards. Uh, much of the South is also destroyed from the latter years of the war. And even after all this passes, uh, what happens next is the era of reconstruction in the South, which is a pretty volatile period. So mm -hmm. because of all this, Amay and her mother end up remaining in Paris uh, for a pretty long time. <laughs> We're not going back to that mess. We're They're staying like, over here for The a water while. is fine over here in Paris. We're just going <laughs> to hang out while you guys figure out who you do and don't want to give voting rights to. <laughs> yeah, guess so. So they're in Paris until 1877, uh, when Amé is 14, they return to New Orleans. So she basically grew up in France, and France in the 1870s and 80s went through kind of an interesting reconsidering of their education. So first, they're kind of asking these questions about what is the actual purpose of education, and who do we think is actually deserving of an education? Mm -hmm. And these questions inevitably lead to education reform and better access for women in the lower classes to get education. So Amé actually got a pretty good education while she was in France. She learned to read and write French. Uh, she learned about arts, literature, and culture. And she even had a couple basic classes where they taught some uh, basic mathematics and like a class where she had a history of impactful scientific discoveries. So yeah. she's at least like aware of a lot of the scientific processes and things that uh, people have discovered out there. <laughs> it's, it's, she's just aware of the things. Yeah, sure. I know what calculus is. I know about calculus. What is it? You ask me, I don't know, but I know it exists. <laughs> it's kind of like women's education in this time period in France is landing in this weird limbo where it would be strange for her to be learning about like how to do engineering and stuff, but she can learn about engineering feats of the Romans that they historically mm. did. So she's mm. kind of like tangentially learning about all of this stuff, definitely more in depth than a lot of other young women at the time. The French are like, God forbid they get any ideas. Yeah, right. <laughs> we don't want too much thinking, but you can be interested uh. in the Romans. <laughs> but speaking of interest, another thing that they have them do in uh, the school system is they have them do sort of study groups. So basically, it's like a guided book club that they would encourage them to do outside of studies. So the girls would meet, there would be someone there to kind of chaperone and guide the conversation. And the girls would take turns choosing what books they're going to read passages from. Whenever it was a May's turn, she would always choose books about architecture or historical engineering, things that are like, you know, basically more nerdy. Things that nerd, you'd be like, really? Nerd. You're a 14-year-old French girl and you want to read about architectural engineering? But <laughs> it seems like she's genuinely interested in just extremely intellectual and knowledgeable things about history and kind of the world in general. Mm -hmm. All that to say, when she's 14, she returns to New Orleans. Uh, it's 1877. And priority number one right away is Amé's debut. Oh, yes. Okay, and what is a debut? You may be wondering, Luis. So debuts are practiced in many cultures. They're intended to basically be both a rite of passage for women coming of age, but also a way of announcing that a young woman is ready to be married. Uh, in New Orleans, typically these girls would be ages 16 to 21. They'd be from wealthy families. And the purpose of a debut would be to attract suitors. In some cultures, it's actually ends up being more of like an arranged marriage where it's kind of mm -hmm. like a gross window shopping-esque thing. Mm -hmm. This is more just like a way to say like, hey, I'm ready to be married and then get out and meet a bunch of uh, eligible bachelors. This is what we in Mexico would call a quinceanera, Kurt. 
works in the same very same way very similar except this will last for an entire year and it'll be more like going to several events and dates kind of every week and functions and being presented in places is that why you would take me out to dinner every other week when we were living together kurt yeah so i can get a good dowry for you hopefully <laughs> but as you'll notice i was unsuccessful so i was surprised every week at the step of my room's door there was just three slices of pizza and a glass of whiskey i'm like what is going on here and i would hear just three knocks outside my window and it's just this three dashing young men asking for my name <laughs> asking for your hand yeah i don't know if to what marriage or a high, <laughs> a high five Unclear. i'm gonna say this this story sounds really glamorous until you consider that we like lived in a neighborhood of chicago <laughs> yeah anyway i don't know how we got off on this track <laughs> but priority number one is Amaze's debut um so right away they get to work on all the prep they can she gets assigned a governess to teach her how to be a proper lady oh, yes she starts attending tons and tons of functions and again this is all just prep she's not even at the debut yet so she's she's attending at this point like a minimum of three parties or social events a week just kind of to build up her social brand and this is people. the montage of the movie part this is the montage yeah Yes, makeover montage. Uh, she enrolls at Newcomb College, which is a girls' college, and it's a lot less intellectual than what her studies in France were. Kind of the major things that they're giving courses at there are like home ec and arts and crafts related things. Mm -hmm. So there's really only, in the time that she's at Newcomb College, there's really only two things that interest Ame. One of them is learning languages, and this is because there's an interesting little detail about, much like how France is kind of in this weird limbo where they're like, you can't be an engineer, but you can learn about Roman engineering. Yeah. New Orleans is kind of still socializing women very much to sit quietly and look pretty, but they also want women to be cultured and have hobbies and interests. So it's kind of like that a woman could be interested in scrapbooking, but could not be a physicist. That's kind of where New Orleans it's like, is. It's like sit down, be quiet, but don't get bored because you might think of getting rights. You yeah. Know? Well, no, it's kind of like if you're hosting or if someone decides to ask you something, you can be like an interesting conversationist. But other than that, you don't really need to know too much. Yeah. So all this to say that one of the things that is like, quote unquote, permissible for women to be learning in New Orleans at this time is to speak a lot of languages. Um, so they're offering a lot of language courses at this college. Ame takes a bunch of them. In total, she's said to have spoken French, English, Spanish, Latin, and a bit of German. Mm. The other thing she does at this college that really interests her is pottery. Newcomb is really known for their pottery program. Ame, of the courses she does, she actually seems genuinely interested in pottery. It seems like maybe because it's more of like a working with her hands thing, it's uh, more attractive to her. So this is basically Ame's life, nonstop until her 21st birthday. It's just all parties, pottery, and a governess. The dream. Yeah, it's, it's you know, go, go, go. We're in a big Quentin Tarantino montage here. Yeah, seriously. But it is not very intellectually stimulating for Ame, who before this was like, you know, doing study groups about architecture and stuff. Either way, though, we get up to 1884. Ame is now 21, and she gets presented at the Pickwick Club, which is a major club in New Orleans. So this is the beginning of her debut year now. She also goes to several Mardi Gras balls and is presented there. And in addition to these things, she'd be going to a lot of parties and events where she'd have an assigned date. So I don't know the names of the specific Mardi Gras balls she went to, but what I do know is that Mardi Gras balls have the wildest names. Okay. So pause pause our story. Ame's in her debut year. Pause that for a moment. Yeah. Luis, yeah. could I interest you in a little mini quiz to tell you some of these wild New Orleans carnival organization names? You already know I love me a good quiz on this podcast, Kurt. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to give you five questions 
Each question will give you an option of one carnival ball organization. So the organizations, it's like the name of the organization, then their, yeah. their ball is named the same thing. So uh, one is the name of the organization. The other is the name of a fictitious group from George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Fire and Ice. Oh, geez, and you tell Kurt. me which is which, okay? You ready? Yeah, I think the best part of this is that I have not read any of George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Fire and Ice. And also, I'd never watched Game of Thrones. And also, I don't know anything <laughs> about New Orleans. So I was going to say, fun. you've also never been to a Mardi Gras ball. So we're exactly. just fully flying blind here. They really are. Okay, number one. The Elves of Oberon or the Alchemist Guild? Okay, that's got to be... Game of Thrones. Elves of Oberon? Are you kidding me? No, no, no. You don't understand, Luis. Those are two options. One of them is a oh, carnival oh. ball. The other is Game of Thrones. Oh. The Elves of Oberon or the Alchemist Guild. One of those is a carnival ball. Okay, I'm going to say the <laughs> Alchemist Club. Because I feel like you can... You, Guild. You, you, you Please. Know, you know. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think there will be... I live in a, in a town. I live in a city. And we like to refer to people as elves sometimes or we did i personally don't because you know we respect elf el the word elves but uh, i'm gonna say the elves of oberon is louisiana is mardi gras club and the alchemist guild that's george george r, r. martin you are correct ah yes all right off to a good start okay number two the silent sisters or the Twelfth Night Revelers. Okay. All right. The Twelfth Night Revelers. That's absolutely a Mardi Gras, Mardi Gras club. That's it's that is be. that is Mardi Gras. You are oh, correct. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Two for two here. Number three. The Ancient Guild of Spicers or the Knights of Momus. The hell is this, Kurt? Um, <laughs> what is going on? These are definitely both George R. R. Mount. What was it? the Guild of Spicers? The Ancient Guild of Spicers or the Knights okay. of Momus. Momus? Momus. M-O-M-U-S. Oh. Interesting. I'm going to say the Knights of Momus is George R. R. Martin. The Knights of Momus is a Mardi Gras organization. What the hell is a Momus? <laughs> Who is Momus? Where Who is, is Momus and why does he have his own guild? <laughs> okay, number four. The Prophets of Persia or the Brotherhood <laughs> of Winged Knights. <laughs> Prophets of Persia has got to be Mardi Gras. Yeah, it is. That one's that yeah, one's a little easy, yeah. but I, just, I couldn't resist letting you know that there's a Mardi Gras organization called the Prophets of Persia. Yeah, that's that sounds like a Leonard Skinner cover band. <laughs> okay, last one, and this one, Luis, is a doozy. So prepare yourself, okay? Number okay. five: the Barefoot Lambs or the High Priests of Mithras. Okay. <laughs> like, like I know that you've, you're getting all of these from from something, but these are all absolutely made up. Like, there's no way. Um, <laughs> the the what prophets of Mithras? The barefoot lambs or the high priests of Mithras? High priests of Mithras. Uh, I'm gonna say the barefoot lambs is the Mardi Gras group. Eh, incorrect. <gasps> the high priests of Mithras is the Mardi Gras organization. Okay, Th this is this both makes me believe that both George R. R. Martin and 1850s Louisiana New Orleans families were all insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I'll tell you of of the other people I gave the quiz to, you did you did a lot better than than some other people who went into it blindly. I see. 
But yeah. um, I also just want to, for your own information, tell you that these are not like old organizations that died out. Many of these Mardi Gras balls still exist. Please tell me the the Knights of Momus are still around. I will get back to you on the Knights of Momus. <laughs> but but yeah, I, actually, um, I gave this quiz to, uh, as you know, uh, one of my friends is New Orleans native. I gave it to her. She got all of them right because she recognized all of the organization names. Mm-hmm. So these are like known mm-hmm. Mardi Gras balls. Anyway, that was a fun little tangent to go on there to share that with you now let's go back to ame who as you may remember is in her debut year so she's out and about meeting all the eligible young bachelors and somewhere in this year she encounters uh, a man named henry germain which as you can guess by his name here is gonna end up being ame's husband Mm -hmm. and how this actually turns out is he gets uh, paired up with ame at a debutante party uh and he's so smitten with her that afterwards he goes to some of the people who are like the planners and organizers of these types of events and says like, hey, every time I'm at a function with Ame, will you quote unquote randomly pair us together? So basically he can get like as much time to court her as possible. <laughs> oh no, Ame, what are the odds? You are I here know. too? <laughs> no. Oh man. But this uh, seems to end up being an effective strategy because they do end up getting married in 1886. So now Ame is on to married life, which is somehow even more boring than debutante life because nice. you know, she's still not getting much intellectual sustenance, but now she doesn't even get to party. Uh. Come on. So she's a little bit disenchanted with newly married life. She convinces her husband, Henry, to add a pottery studio to the house so that she can have a hobby. So he adds a large room to the house. They order a whole bunch of crates of materials and pottery equipment. But what Ame does not tell her husband is that a bunch of the things that she ordered, both tools and materials, have absolutely nothing to do with pottery. Because in addition (sighs) to being a pottery studio, it also is going to double as sort of a pseudo secretive work shop yeah not explicitly secretive but this kind of thing of like women working on things will be frowned upon in this time so she's not really advertising that fact she's working on a t- on a time bomb like on a pipe bomb and everyone's wondering <laughs> like what is that ame oh it's just a nice clay pot couldn't be a pipe bomb no not me no no never a dirty bomb <laughs> <laughs> making homemade napalm and everyone's like ame what are you doing this time oh it's just a vase <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the workshop doesn't really have any specific purpose. It's just kind of to entertain her restless mind. So she'll really just disassemble and reassemble whatever she can get her hands on, including, you know, like clocks, cameras, telescopes, just kind of whatever small items could be simply taken apart and then she can try to put them back together. And at first it's mostly pottery studio and a little bit pseudo workshop, but gradually becomes more and more workshop and less and less pottery studio. And it's not clear at what point in this Henry noticed that this pottery studio kind of doubles in its function. (laughs) He had to have at some point, but he was generally pretty busy with work. So it seems like he's kind of like, I'm off doing things. My wife is not complaining. It's all happening like inside the house. I don't really care. Like whatever. So he doesn't necessarily approve, but he's not standing in her way. Fine. Build your napalm. I don't care. See Fine, if I yeah, care. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> happy wife, happy life. Let, let her make the dirty bomb. Whatever. Yeah. So disassembling things inevitably leads to building new things. Um, and one of the things that she does first is she has her hands on a lot of telescopes. So she starts like piecing together new telescopes from old broken telescopes. So it's like this one has a broken lens. This one has a destroyed body. Mm-hmm. You can make one functioning telescope from this. She builds uh, a couple telescopes from old parts, and she also makes a couple devices to make new pottery imprints. Okay. So ways to like put imprints in pottery or shape pottery in a way that you wouldn't be able to with your hand. And in 1899, she actually patented a prototype for a telescope with two interchangeable thicknesses of glass. So oh. it's 
it's got like a little zoom action on it. You know, you can get like oh, a magnifying yeah. factor. The the two times zoom, you want to really get in there and see the details. <laughs> two times zoom, it's a, it's the four times scope. Yeah, and you know because it's a patent and it is a, a little bit of a cool item, and it's a bit a, a bit strange that she's just you know really like a wealthy housewife who invented this telescope. It does make a little bit of local news, not really anything major, but oh, uh, but what will Mister Germain think? It's out in the world. The patent is out. He's he's got a very much don't ask, don't tell situation going on, it seems like. I mean, I don't really have a lot of detail on that, but it's not something that he was like in the street, like, hey guys, have you seen my wife's in there just churning out inventions? But he's also not like stopping her from doing this. <laughs> so after the telescope, Ame would go on to design the thing that she's probably best known for. And to get to how she figured this out, I have to explain to you two things that were invented right before this, okay? Okay. So first of all, in 1880, what we would kind of think of as like the modern projector was invented. And what actually happened is people were getting their hands on light bulbs more often. Mm -hmm. So people just started taking like old projector designs, but now they're using a light bulb as a light source and realizing like, wow, you can do so many things with this new light source and stuff. <laughs> um, and so they're starting to design more intelligent projectors with like sturdier pieces and glass lenses and stuff. So one of the things that Ame does, uh, this is 1880, about 10 years later in 1890, they're a lot more commonplace. So she has like some projectors and the glass lenses that she's tinkering around with. Also in 1888, Kodak began selling their first camera using celluloid film. Okay. So before that film would be on like paper or on a plate, celluloid film is just a lot sturdier. It needs a lot less sensitive light conditions. So there's a lot more things you can do with that too. So Ame also has one of these cameras that she's messing around with. Presumably her thought process here is that new projectors and new cameras basically are using the same set of parts. Like if you disassembled them, you would have the same components, but they're just arranged in a different way. Mm -hmm. They also have sort of opposite functions too, that like one is taking in light to imprint it onto a negative through a lens. The other is projecting light through a negative to be projected out through a lens. Mm -hmm. So she thinks maybe there's some sort of way that you could build like one device that could interchangeably do both of these things. In 1892, Ame creates design plans for an interchangeable lens so it can be used uh, on a device that would be a camera or a projector. So she's just drawn up design plans, but the idea would be you would have this photography camera, you can take a picture with it, and then you can exchange some parts and now it can project the picture through the same negative. Oh, cool. So she builds a little prototype of an interchangeable lens mount because obviously you would need to change the lens. And then she builds a second prototype of a modifiable light bulb housing. So she has these two prototypes and her design plans. At this point, Ame becomes uh, actually even more locally famous for her inventions because this one, she doesn't have a patent on it, but it's just kind of exciting because cameras are a very new thing and people already know of her from the telescope. And they're like, wow, mm -hmm. this one actually mm -hmm. can have some major repercussions. This is like a pretty clever idea. Okay. So this brings us to 1893. Good year. In the year 1893, good year, the Lumiere brothers came to New Orleans. Who are the Lumiere brothers? Okay. The Lumiere brothers were these two French brothers who worked in manufacturing photography equipment. They made really huge contributions to film and filmmaking, both in technology, but in creative things they added. They basically did for film what the Wright brothers did for flight. So they kind of like created it, but also shaped it in the early days. And fun fact, they were actually both talking, living candelabras. <laughs> What? You ever seen Beauty and the Beast? It's the name of the talking candelabra. His name is Lumiere. Come on, wow. Kurt. Okay, it is, evidently it has been too long since I have seen Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> All right, Kurt, that joke was, was about to be a banger banger hit look and, and I, other people out there laughed it was it was it was too good for me okay to all the other people big kiss as they say he who laughs last clearly did not get the joke in the first place <laughs> so 
That being said, so the Lumiere brothers in 1889, the Paris World's Fair happened in 1889. And so they're at the Paris World's Fair showing off their cutting edge camera equipment. After the Paris World's Fair, as happened with many World's Fair, a lot of the exhibits started on this global tour where they would go to different cities to kind of continue showing off the advancements of their country. So the Lumiere brothers are on part of this global tour, which brings them to New Orleans in 1893. And Amé is a big fan of the Lumiere brothers. She's read about their camera inventions. Uh, they're kind of in the middle of their careers right now. So they haven't done all the cool stuff they're going to, but they've done enough that she's like, uh, like I said, a little bit of a fan of them. Yeah. She writes to them asking for a chance to show them her prototype and if they're interested in meeting her. And to her surprise, they respond. So in late 1893, the Lumiere brothers visit Amé's workshop. They're very impressed and intrigued by the prototype. They ask if they can take the light bulb housing prototype. Remember, the one of the prototypes is a modifiable yeah, yeah, light bulb yeah. housing back to their lab in France to study it. Uh, she agrees. Oh, never trust that. Never trust that. Oh, those deceiving they French. They take the prototype. <gasps> no. They leave. She never hears from them again. She oh. never receives her prototype back. And damn, so this is damn. in 1893. In 1895, the Lumiere brothers developed the first video camera. And on the video camera, so one important distinction between a photography camera and a video camera is that for photography, the camera shutter only has to open and close one time, but for video, it has to do it many times in a second. So you need just a sturdier camera for this. The same tech that was used on the modifiable light bulb housing to make it where it was sturdy, but still could be interchanged. Similar ideas were applied to the housing of the shutter on oh. the Lumiere Brothers video camera. It took a Mace idea. Oh, yeah, it seems man. to be a lot similar to a Mace idea, or at least her design. After this, Amay continued to work on projectors, but she did not have any other major inventions. She got a lot busier raising her children. Um, her husband passed away in 1901, and Amay passed away shortly after in 1902 at the age of 39. Oh, man. Uh, their wow. two sons were taken in by Henry's sister and her husband, and the one remaining prototype, the interchangeable lens mount, uh, they buried with Amay. Whoa. This is is the story that oh, Michelle man. Germain grows up hearing about her great great grandmother, Amé Germain. So Michelle Germain is the great oh, great wow. granddaughter of Amé. Oh, sweet, we love it. We just did a, a huge time jump. I love yeah, this. Yeah, Act Two, Act Two. We're not act done. Two. We're not oh, done. Act wow. Two. Now, now is where we're gonna get wild. Okay. 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 So Michelle Germain, great great granddaughter of Amé. Uh, she's a journalism student at Newcomb in 1993, same university. Mm -hmm. She writes an essay about this family history that she knows about, this story that she's grown up hearing. Also, it's uh, 1993, so it's the hundred year anniversary of Amé's meeting with the Lumiere brothers. Mm -hmm. Her essay gets published in the student newspaper in March of 1993, and a lot of readers are really vicariously angry on Amé's behalf that she never got any recognition. Yeah. apology yeah. you know people on one level are kind of like they completely blatantly stole her thing and used it and people on another level are like they at least used her idea and never gave her any credit or recognition that it seems like she deserved you know she at least contributed to this in some I form guess. so because of this anger the story grows in popularity it's reported on the local news and now we get to a couple months down the road in June 1993 the story has gotten large enough that now the Lumiere brother advocates start coming forward <gasps> Wow, the Lumiere the Twitter protests. stands. Yeah, I mean, oh, it's 1993, no. so there is no Twitter. But had there been Twitter, the Lumiere Twitter stands are coming out of the woodwork, baby. Oh, are you Team Germain or are you Team Lumiere? I love exactly. it. Exactly. So... They're saying they think that Michelle is embellishing or making up some of these details, or maybe she truly believes the story, but it's a family legend. It's a story that her family has made up, or maybe mm -hmm. details have been lost or changed over time. 
But the Lumiers definitely did not steal any ideas. They were two very brilliant men. They had enough of ideas of their own. They did not need to take from anyone else. Mm-hmm. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> Michelle, at this point, has graduated. And she is undeterred by this criticism. And she's like, you know what? You got a lot of good points, okay? There is not a lot of physical evidence to back this up. So let's go get some evidence, okay? So here's the plan, okay? Step one. Can we prove the Lumiere brothers were in New Orleans in 1893? Yeah, we can prove that because there's publicly available surviving photographs and correspondence from their time in New Orleans. So they were definitely in New Orleans in 1893. Okay. Okay. Step two. Can we prove the Lumiers met with Amey? The Lumiere family, uh, who now in modern times is the Lumiere Toussaint family, okay. says that they are not aware of any meeting with Amey taking place. So other than the word of mouth evidence, there's not really any physical evidence. It's all just kind of anecdotal. And Amey told people at the time about this meeting. But now because it's a story that's been like passed down through generations, it's kind of all funneled through this one choke point. Sure. So, you know, there's a lot of quantity of evidence, but it is all just word of mouth. So put a pin in that for now while we go to step (laughs) 2.5. Can we show that Amey's prototype has similarities with the Lumiere's camera? Okay, because the modifiable housing prototype is, you know, gone. It's lost to time. Mm -hmm. But the interchangeable lens housing, she designed both of them for the same thing. And they're different pieces of tech, but maybe they would have similarities in like their intention and their design or the way that they were put together or the ideas. And the interchangeable lens mount is where, Luis? It's buried with her. It's buried with her. Yes. Oh, man. Hell yeah. There's also a hope that perhaps the original design drawings, like the plans, are buried with her with the prototype. Uh-huh. So if that were the case, then it would have a drawing of the second prototype, which then would may have strong similarities to the oh, original yes. camera. This is looking so much more like a Scooby-Doo mystery. I love this. Okay, so in 1995, the city of New Orleans finally grants Michelle permission to exhume a major main's casket. Yes. And drumroll, please. Yes. The casket. Basket is empty. What? Not like there's no prototype in it. Like no prototype, no body, no nothing. <gasps> In oh it. no. Uh oh. Step zero. Oh. Can we prove Amei existed? Oh, wh- what? No. We have no body. We have no prototype. There's no surviving copies of these local newspaper stories that she <gasps> was, you know, like on page five in. There's no surviving photographs of her. There's no paintings of her. What? Okay. Uh, there's no birth certificate. Weirdly, there's no death certificate, which the city should definitely have. Mm-hmm. All right. What about the telescope patent? Remember that? She had the telescope patent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there is a telescope patent for an Amé Germain. But this story starts circulating that there is another inventor in Baton Rouge named Armand Germain who had a couple patents in electrical wiring around the same time. Maybe it was a patent meant for him and it was misread or miswritten as Amé Germain. Oh, God. So the only real physical things they have of her, they have a journal that she wrote, but it doesn't cover the time period of her life when she would have met the Lumiers. So it's kind of nothing for that. And they have some alleged personal possessions of her, but that's not really any proof. Yeah. So now we're in a real pickle because of course the story becomes even more sensationalized now and now michelle's like kicked a little bit of a hornet's nest because everybody's in her business and there's a lot of questions like did michelle lie did her family lie to her if she's not lying where is Amay's body michelle's just sitting in her study alone at night just with a glass of whiskey in hand just thinking did i really have a great 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 grandmother (laughs) was this really worth the grade that i got on the essay i wrote for this class two years ago this was a c plus level essay like it wasn't that great guys come on calm down yeah 
So, Luis, do you have do you have any guesses, any any solutions to this mystery at this point? The Lumiere brothers kidnapped Amage Amain and took her back to France and told no one. She was the second prototype. She was the modifiable light bulb housing. She's in the camera. She was the second <laughs> Lumiere brother this whole he time. She was the second Lumiere. <laughs> she was just she was just saying he, he she was what Pierre Lumiere which is the beard on and never spoke. And that's that's why the the modern the Lumiere Toussaint family is like being very coy about like we're not aware of any meeting because Ame was the Lumiere Ame, brothers. Yeah, it's, they it's could not the, have met. It's the Germain Toussaint Lumiere family, but no one knows. <laughs> no one really knows. It's like I went to a, d during Christmas time, there's a Three Kings Day celebration. And here in Mexico, you have all the Three Kings come out kind of like Santa at the mall. And you, you take pictures with the three kings, with the three wise men. And they're all these big, like, robed, hooded, uh, big bearded men, right, that are just mm -hmm. there. That's the, the traditional folk meaning right. of the, the three kings. But uh, I went to go take a picture with these three kings. And I noticed that one of them was eerily silent. Okay. And I looked, took a deeper look at this person. And I noticed it was a woman underneath a big, bushy beard, like a beard costume. But she was very silent because the three kings in the lore are all are both are all men right right so i guess they just had one of the municipal employees say guys are one of our three kings dropped out you have to go <laughs> in there uh stephanie and put on this beard and just be quiet <laughs> and that's what i'm thinking it's a character role Luis. anyone can play it. you don't understand how well she plays king number two <laughs> <laughs> well now that's get, getting me thinking maybe i may just well, like we remember the Lumiere brothers as Lumiere brothers, but there was actually not a a second Lumiere until 1893, when the first Lumiere went to New Orleans and came back with a long lost brother. Whoa! <laughs> now that's an essay that would give me a C plus in college. <laughs> Okay, well, good good guesses, Luis. Thank you. But I do know a man who has some answers. Oh. Uh, and this man enters the picture because this story now, when there's all the questions about have we caught the Germain family in a scandal, <laughs> it gets large enough that it starts to reach some international ears. Yeah. Now enter Felipe Cadu. Okay. And Felipe is a 32-year-old Frenchman. He's living in Paris. And he is the great-great-grandson of the stepson of Ame. Okay. Okay, so what <laughs> happened how do we get in this situation all right so henry like i said was kind of indifferent to the whole workshop thing but his family strongly disapproved of this quote-unquote lifestyle that ame mm -hmm. has because she's like mm -hmm. working in a cluttered lab she's like you know it's presumably pretty dirty she's meeting with these male academics and other men she's allegedly neglecting her children and she's not meeting her clay pot quota for the month she is not meeting her clay pot quota for the month they were like whoa 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 we had it figured out with the pottery studio when did when did we get on cameras how is this studio so unkempt and yet all your clay is unutilized huh ame <laughs> so yeah they think that this basically is not very ladylike but i guess in their mind it's like severely not ladylike because <laughs> after henry passes away in 1901 the germain family made it clear to ame that they would not allow her to keep possession of her two sons Whoa. and they also were not going to just financially support her indefinitely until she died Whoa. so they offer her an unspecified amount of money to basically buy a boat ticket to paris and get out and that's what she does uh, after she leaves they hold a mock funeral for her and they never write
write up a death certificate, evidently, <sighs> which is why the city does not have one. And there's an empty casket buried in her grave. Whoa. So Amé went to Paris. And after she returned to Paris, she ultimately married a man named Etienne Cadou, who was a widower with two sons. Um, she didn't end up creating another workshop, but she did become more interested in architecture and design, which, as you may remember, was one of the original things she studied mm -hmm. in Paris. We're back. Between 1907 and 1913, she designed the fronts of several buildings in Paris suburbs, and she also left behind several drawings of some full buildings she had designed, and even like some partial models. Uh, she also drew several of her own dresses, and a couple of them she had sewn together, and there's some surviving pieces of that. She ultimately died in 1919 at the age of 56 from pneumonia, and and she was buried in Belleville Cemetery. Interesting. As far, I mean, I don't think they checked, but I think this time they're like pretty certain she's <laughs> pretty down certain. There. That, that I guess given her history, maybe they should look just in case. <laughs> but none of that is important because I know what you're wondering right now is, did she meet the Lumiere brothers? Right. Yeah. We got to get some answers on that. Yeah. So in addition to the other things, the Cadeau family also has the prototype that was allegedly buried with Ame. Unfortunately, like I said earlier, because it's two different pieces of tech even though they were made for the same thing originally, it's pretty difficult to compare. Are there similarities here? Are there not similarities? I mean, they're both pretty simple machines. Mm -hmm. But more importantly than this, so as the Cadeau family heard the story from Amay, not only did she meet with the Lumiere brothers, she also discussed with them her ideas about what could be possible given the capabilities of celluloid film and some of the other new camera technology that possibly there could be a camera that could record a moving picture onto celluloid film. Mm -hmm. And the deal was supposed to be that they would take the prototype number two and they were going to return to New Orleans in a year or so and then they would return it to her. Mm -hmm. So the story that they heard is that she very blatantly, not that they just took her idea, that they took like a big chunk of her idea. Maybe they had already had it before, but either way, she was all over this video camera thing. Mm -hmm. There's no way to, you know, definitively prove this for sure, but Ame was definitely real and she definitely believed that the Lumiere brothers had stolen from her. Whoa. In 1999, France posthumously awarded Ame Cadeau the Order of Palm for her contribution to academic and scientific advancement. And in 2005, after Hurricane Katrina, Newcomb College and Tulane College were both pretty damaged. So they ended up joining to create a joint Newcomb Tulane College. They built a new pottery wing on their art school and the pottery wing they named after a major man. Because as you may remember, one of the two things that she did a lot at, at Newcomb was pottery. Mm -hmm. They also uh, created a scholarship for women going into STEM fields named after her. The Lumiere Toussaint family, for the record, still maintains that the brothers never met with a May, as far as they are aware. Ah, uh, cowards. So it's all up to the court of public opinion, but, but that's it. What do you think of that, Luis? Oh, wow. I mean... Uh... This this took the 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 turn I wanted it to take, Kurt. Like just a, a Scooby Doo turn. A Scooby Doo turn, yeah. Just yeah, a secret, yeah, yeah. secret exile to France. That was nice. That's <laughs> a, 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 I like that. I always enjoy a nice secret exile. And the villain was the Germain family all along. Well, I guess it might be the Lumiers too, but you know that was a very Scooby Doo twist. Very very Scooby Doo twist, and they would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for the Lumiere Toussaints. You know, if it wasn't for those meddling great great granddaughters, <laughs> the great great grandson <laughs> of a stepson. <laughs> this is this is fun because so okay this was confirmed to be the same Ame that was buried in France right the same Ame Ame Cadu was the same Ame as Ame Germain yeah in total she was born Ame Labadou married to Ame Germain mm -hmm. and then married to Ame Cadu <laughs> 
unofficially died with that name <laughs> and and was reborn again as Ame Kadu. Yeah, I mean, the thing is they they have uh the Kadu family has, you know, so much of her stuff that they can confirm that she is the same person because, mm-hmm. you know, what what are the odds that they have a prototype from another woman named Ame who says she came from New Orleans and also this family in New Orleans separately has a story yeah. with some of her other stuff. Yeah. Well, that's interesting that everyone just went along with the fact that Ame had died, even the, the sons, you know, I would imagine that the sons would have been more interested about the death of their mother. But I guess if they were young children uh, when she died, they were much, much like their father, too. And like the the Germain family was a pretty powerful family in New Orleans because they owned a lot of the ports. So they were like very busy and involved with business stuff. But also they were not super old at the time. I mean, I think this was probably one of the reasons for the mock funeral is because they they wanted them to just like yeah. take this and move on with it. It is one of those things that, like we say before, you just go back like a hundred years. I mean, anywhere, but a hundred years in America, and you're like, holy cow, it was the Wild West. Like, <laughs> we only it, recently got civilized. And especially with, I, I guess, record keeping, right? And, and document maintaining. You say a hundred years ago, and you think, oh, of course, there would have been papers and documents that would have verified that this person was indeed alive or not, or maybe a municipal person that was there to record that this person actually died but but no i mean you just go back a hundred years and there's absolutely no documentation to to prove all this because frankly it would be impossible to do a secret exile right now right yeah yeah like i would love to exile myself just somewhere just for the hell of it be like be like guys bad news a major main is dead and then someone would be like weird her phone location says she's in france uh <laughs> hold uh, on uh, <laughs> forgot to turn off turn off my track <laughs> um, no, that, that's that's great. And you know what? I've been I've been currently researching some of my own family history dating back to early 1900s, 1800s. Mm. And you do you do find that it's very difficult to get these documents even 100 years ago. Yeah. Even 80 years ago. Right. So. Yeah. So this 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 does ring very true. So what 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 happened with Michelle? Is Michelle still around advocating for Ame? Ame? She's it's not like she made her whole career about the Ame thing. I kind of think it's kind of like once she cleared her name. <laughs> I imagine she did not intend to put herself that much in the middle of like an international conflict. Right. And right. probably once she was in the middle of it, just badly wanted to be out of it. So once it's like the court of public opinion has decided, okay, Michelle's not lying to us. Ame was probably <laughs> done wrong. I think that's good enough for her, and she moved on I mean, to better stuff, it, hopefully. If this happened in 1893, this year, 2023, Kurt, is going to be the 130 anniversary of the alleged meeting with the Lumiere brothers. Of the alleged meeting. So we could, I mean, if anything, we could revive this anger between the two the two families, the Germain and the Lumiere families. <laughs> if anything, if this podcast is good for anything, it's for angering its listeners. That's true. And lying. And lying. And so lying. are we telling lying. the truth? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Luis, I want to tell you a story about what may be the scariest bridge in the world. And how could it be the scariest bridge in the world? Well, let me tell you, because this bridge may be possessed by a demon. Uh And hold your applause, not just any demon, a demon that hates dogs. Oh, no. (laughs) Specifically hates dogs. He hates dogs so much. Oh, my goodness. If it is a demon. (laughs) 
<laughs> Let's get to it, all right? So this bridge is called the Overton Bridge. It's constructed in 1895 near Dumbarton, Scotland. Okay. Uh, it's a stone bridge that crosses the Overton Burn, which is basically just like a small creek. I mean, it's like a creek where it's so small, it's not even flowing water constantly. Mm -hmm. So it's just a stone bridge that arches across it. It's basically a 50-foot drop down to brush and rocks. And it's part of the Overton Estate. So there's like the Overton Farm and the Overton House. And then the Overton Bridge crosses this big gorge in the land near the Overton House. Nice. Now, I'm going to send you a picture of this bridge because I feel like calling it a bridge and just describing it as a stone arch bridge does not do it justice to to what this bridge looks like. So can you can you give us some more descriptive words here? Yeah, this is a uh, I think if you were to look up on Google eerie looking bridge, I think this is what you would get. It's a stone arch bridge with fairly weathered stone. You can definitely see some bricks that are at there like smeared in black from I guess pollution. And from what it seems, it's in the middle of this little you could say just it's surrounded by brush it's surrounded by trees that are kind of arching along with the mm -hmm. with the bridge and on top you kind of see this these fortifications as if it was a castle so it almost looks like the entrance to a castle yeah and the and the pictures you sent me Kurt are in the daytime but i can very much imagine this in like the fog of scotland you know, right. And we'll post this on the Instagram, but it's it's really a really beautiful, beautiful bridge. But it does it does give some some eerie feelings like you don't want to be walking around here at mm -hmm. 8 p.m. at night. It could be beautiful or spooky. It could be a very liminal space for sure. And you also commented that there's a lot of brush. So you'll see like on either side of the bridge, uh, there's like mm -hmm. a big tree line of brush as well, mm -hmm. um, which yeah. is nice. So it kind of makes you feel like you're enclosed, but also probably makes it feel creepier if you're there. It's a very robust looking bridge. Like it's it's lack of a better better word it's a very girthy bridge right so it yeah. almost that makes it feel a little claustrophobic even. Yeah, yeah. So now we're going to fast forward to 1950, okay? Mm -hmm. And at this point in time, a lot of the land on the estate has become more public land. So the bridge now connects this major walking path. And around this time, dog walking becomes more common. So people start walking their dogs on this path and of course, crossing the bridge. And this is the time period where the bridge receives its nickname, the Bridge of Death, or more depressingly, the Dog Suicide Bridge. Oh. I know, no. I know. And this is because because people begin reporting a strange number of dogs running and jumping off of the bridge as if they're in some sort of trance. Interesting. And so this is sort of a local legend until the late 2000s when the story becomes a lot more widely spread. This is just my own personal speculation, but maybe this is because the internet allowed this to grow out of just the regional area. <laughs> but it's estimated that since the earliest reports in the 50s and 2010, around 50 dogs have died from jumping and another 600 have jumped and survived the fall. Oh, God. And even even more eerie, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence of stories of dogs jumping off, then going back up the bridge to jump again. All right, but are we sure that they're jumping or is just a, one angry owner just tossing the dog? Well, let's see, because speaking oh. of speaking of <laughs> anecdotal evidence, so there's a ton of stories from people <laughs> like this, okay? So, Sorry. <laughs> I think that should be the, the t subtitle of this podcast. <laughs> Just speaking of anecdotal evidence. <laughs> <laughs> 
Seriously, we, 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 we take some anecdotal evidence as you said, a gos- uh, you said as gospel all the time. We do. I love it. Really we do, do our it. best, but we are the misinformation central over here. That's true. Sorry. Go on, Kurt. <laughs> yes. Okay. So uh, this is this is a story of one person who's, whose dog jumped off the bridge. Okay. In 2014, Alice Trevorrow was taking her dog Cassie for a walk. And Cassie's a pretty well-trained dog. So they park near the bridge. She lets Cassie out. She doesn't put her on a leash right away because, like I said, she's a very obedient dog. Here's a quote from Alice. She's so obedient, I didn't put her lead on. Me and my son walked towards Cassie, who was staring at something above the bridge. She definitely saw something that made her jump. There was something sinister going on. It was so out of character for her. And so all of these stories are very similar to this, and they have these common themes that the dog seemed possessed or acted out of character, and it happened very suddenly, and it happened very quickly. Mm. Even a lot of stories of people where they just say they weren't even that close to the bridge, and the dog suddenly bolted and jumped straight over the side. They were merely acquaintances with the bridge. (laughs) They were just work friends with the bridge. But still, this (laughs) dog just went for it. (laughs) So as far as explanations, right off the bat, I think as you can guess, I mean, one is this is an area where people are very superstitious but here we go bring out the supernatural explanations okay you ready for this Luis? let's do it all right so first we've got just a generally it's haunted there's spirits blah boring come on give us give us the typical scotland give us the down and dirty details you know yeah come on so one of the major legends is that there is this spirit called the white lady of overton allegedly i mean this is true that the first baron of overton he died and his wife lived on in the house the overton house for 30 years after his death grieving this is back in 19 and so there's a legend has it her grieving spirit still haunts the bridge type of thing going on all right she had 30 years to grieve and that wasn't enough that's what i'm saying like when will the business be finished i mean from what i'm hearing it sounds like she had a lot of time to process but also she's not only having a lot of time to process but she's what a lord or a, a lady she's having a lot of time to process just wiping her tears for with cash come on ghost. she's a woman who has access to clean water at least so that's like you know yeah, pretty good <laughs> all things come considered. on man yeah yeah sure you can be sad about your dead husband but after year 11 i feel like you're kind of over it right listen lady the dead husband thing is rough but have you tried dysentery yeah <laughs> Okay, so you're not biting on the on the white lady of Overton. That's no, that, not no, at all. okay. All right, okay. No. Next next theory here. Some locals believe that the bridge is a Celtic thin place. No. A thin place is a location where the fabric between heaven and earth is thinnest. So okay. it means it's like the location where on earth where you're closest to heaven, and in this location, it's like a holy site where reality can be kind of altered. So what do you what do you you feel you vibing with the thin place or or what I do we think? think? I, you know, I, I feel like I, I like that one more than the white lady of Overton. Overton. I mean, mm-hmm. what I'm wondering is why of all place on earth would this bridge be the thin place? You know, if anything, mm. I feel like what what else have you got going on in Overton that that signify thin place? Or is it just a vibe? Is it just a Well, feeling? I'm glad you asked why this might be a thin place, Luis, because I know a man who maybe has some answers for you. <laughs> okay. Do you now? Because supernatural theory number three, as promised, demonic bridge possession. All right. Yes. Here we go. Ladies and gentlemen. So in October 1994, a man named Kevin Moy threw his two-week-old son, Aegon, off the bridge because Jesus. he believed his son was the incarnation <laughs> of the devil due to a satanic birthmark. This is already a good start. Yeah. <laughs> Moy then attempted to kill himself by jumping off the bridge repeatedly, but the police arrived and detained him before he was successful. He said he chose the location because of its association with dark spirits going back to the Druidic days. Mm-hmm. So he's like, this is an ancient, dark, spiritual place. He was placed in a mental hospital and diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Nice. 
Classic. But, you know, maybe maybe he's got some mental issues and also has, like, a lot of knowledge of the Druidic days. You never know. He, just a scholar in the, Dru- in the Druids back then. Yeah. Well, well, quick question. I must ask you, Kurt. Didn't you say that this bridge was in the Overton Estate? Like, does this land belong to other people? Or is it just, like, common walking Well, it's, it's like I was saying that, that by the time we got to the 1950s, a lot of the estate has become more public land. Because oh, before okay. it was gotcha. like, you know, it's out in the countryside of Scotland. So they're like, yeah, sure, we'll take this whole region. That's just our farm now but then obviously once you get denser population some things start to become more public land or sold off to other people so yeah the bridge is on like a walking path basically it's like a park situation gotcha because i was just wondering like this guy just says i gotta throw my kid off a ledge but where am i gonna do it gonna hop a fence onto the overton estate have them deal with it and just toss (laughs) my kid off the bridge also he he jumped repeatedly like he was on attempt number four when the police arrived yeah he cut his he cut his wrist too i don't know what order this happened in but he like more more than once tried to jump off the bridge to kill Jeez. himself, which is a really spooky detail given that yeah. there's just something about this bridge, man. Yeah, really. So anyway, he's in a paranoid hospital. Yeah. Okay. So so those those are our, our supernatural options. Mm-hmm. Now it's 2014 and it is time for science to try. Da, Ooh, da, da, da. <laughs> time yeah. for a scientific approach. <laughs> you, are you booing? You're booing science? I said woohoo, Kurt. <laughs> oh, boo. No, boo. Go back to the demon stuff. We like <laughs> oh, the, the <laughs> demon possession better. Boo. Boo. Talk more about the thin place. Boo. <laughs> well, they like the older material. Anyway. So David Sands, uh, he's a canine psychologist. He examines the bridge. Canine psychologist? Like he's a dog? <laughs> You're telling me a canine did this psychology? <laughs> oh, no way. He's, he, it sucks being a dog psychologist going up to this bridge. You get just this urge to jump. Canine psychology bridge examination is a bridge examining a canine who has a major in psychology. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> so out of that process, two conclusions are drawn. <laughs> uh, yes. Okay. One, because dogs are not as tall as humans. And remember the thick what? tree line. Uh, <laughs> how long have you known about this? <laughs> you know what? The science, we, we give up on science. Back to the demon stuff. The science yeah, thing sorry. has not worked you, out. You, you mentioned dog psychology. And I said, that's, I'm done. <laughs> now you've, you've lost me. You weren't ready to move past the canine psychology. <laughs> no, I never will be now, Kurt. Come on. <laughs> Okay, dogs are not as tall as humans. And a, a well-established fact on this podcast. Yeah. You remember that there's the thick tree line before the bridge. Also, the bridge has these tall walls on either side of it. Uh-huh. Maybe the dogs can't see the drop-off. And so then they, when they get onto the bridge, they don't realize that there's like 50 feet mm. of nothingness below them. Oh, shoot. <laughs> also, the scent of animal carcasses and mink urine is causing the dogs to go into a frenzy and chase after the smell. So he thinks that there's like, you know, I don't know why dogs would be more attracted to dead animal carcasses in the gorge, but something about the mink urine specifically he's concluding that this is like makes dogs go into a frenzy i mean speak for speak for yourself kurt but mink urine makes me go wild <laughs> okay so so you're you're throwing your lot in with david sands with the canine psychologist well i feel i feel like it kind of makes sense like the theory of oh it it's just hard to see the drop off as much as that seems like a stupid conclusion it's kind of an occam's racer solution here mm-hmm. where well okay yeah i guess it makes sense that you can't really see where the drop off is mm-hmm. and if it if they're kind of attracted to walk towards the path that might lead them to fall down because of mink urine, yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. Now, two things here. 
One, so just to be clear, when you were a kid and your mom said, so if all your friends jump off a bridge, you're going to do it too. You're like, is there mink urine? Yeah, it, that, that changes <laughs> things, mom. Like, I got to know about the mink urine situation first. It's actually the, the friends thing, not so, as important as the mink urine. Mostly we got to know about the presence or lack thereof of the mink the urine. Lack thereof of mink urine. A disturbing lack of mink urine on this bridge. Let me tell you, okay? You guys got to clean it up around here. Yeah, dog, I mean, a dog told me this and he's a psychologist. <laughs> he's a psychologist. Right? But secondly, the mink urine thing does not explain the dogs jumping multiple times off the bridge. I mean, maybe it does. Maybe this mink urine is some good stuff, but I don't get how if, like, you'd think after the first 50-foot fall, you would then be aware of the terrain. I mean, the the the, the lengths you would go for mink urine, Kurt, once you get a taste for it, it's, it's a little unreasonable. Mm. <laughs> you get the taste for mink urine. <laughs> yeah, once you acquire the taste for mink urine, Kurt, there's no going back. All right, well, you and you and David Sands, our canine psychologist of the mink urine boys, you guys are on, on the mink urine train. It's like Sid Vicious, just tattooed on my chest. Gotta get my fix of mink urine. <laughs> Give me my fix. <laughs> Give me my fix of mink urine. Uh, counterpoint to this mink urine thing, John Joyce, who is a local hunter and 50-year resident of the area, has a look around and declares there are no minks in this area. <gasps> which, no. I mean, do with that what you want. Because we got the canine psychologist, which I have like a tough time grasping how trustworthy of a person that makes you if you're a canine psychologist, is in here like, I declare it is mink urine. And then John Joyce, whose qualifications are, he's lived here a long time, is like, <laughs> there are no minks here. I looked around, <laughs> couldn't find a mink. I'll tell you that. Counter counterpoint. Oh no. Officer David Sexton from the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, they're invested in this for some reason. He has a look around and he reports that on the side of the bridge that's reportedly favored by the dogs in some of the bushes, he finds nests of mice, squirrels, and minks. Nothing but minks. And then he goes further. They do a they do a field test where they get ten dogs oh and they have a canister of mink scent and a canister oh. of squirrel scent. And of the 10 dogs, seven of them, quote, went straight for the mink scent and many of them quite dramatically. Mm -hmm. So from that, they conclude, okay, it is probably the mink urine. Final theory though. Oh, there's another one. Uh, for me, the mink urine thing does not check all the boxes because it's, okay, if you break down what their methodology was here, they just got 10 dogs and they just said like seven of them went to one thing instead of the other thing. And just because there are minks there doesn't mean that it's the mink urine causing this. And for me, the like tree line thing does not solve the why are they jumping multiple times so i think there's a lot of a lot of good things to the mink urine theory but for me it's not definitive proof yet you're not believing that minks have big enough bladders to provide enough urine for dogs to dive off of a bridge off yeah. on the on the 600s i'm i'm not i'm not sold on the mink urine i'm gonna i'm gonna need to see some peer-reviewed studies here coward but here's the final theory okay so since this story is still a major story because there's not really a definitive answer there was an interview with uh who are the current owners of the house this couple named bob and Melissa Hill. And so they lived in the house for 17 years. Remember the Overton house is near the bridge. So it's like basically in view of it. Mm -hmm. uh, they've seen numerous dogs jump in the time that they've lived there. And Bob Hill, who is originally a pastor from Texas. So I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to try to Whoa. get a little Texas drawl on this. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a man who is familiar with some mink urine. According to him, let me tell you, okay. He is the mink uh, urine. He, and he goes, the dogs catch a scent of mink, pine martens, or some other mammal. And then they'll jump on the wall of the bridge. Because it's tapered, they'll just topple over. 
Uh, so uh, I don't know if, how, how intelligible that was for you, but basically he's like, I've seen dogs go wild for mink scent before. They they can't see over the bridge. They just jump on the wall and uh, jump up the bridge on the wall of it and flip over and done deal. Huh. So he's a mink urine guy, you would think. But then he also says he believes that the house and the grounds have a spiritual and supernatural quality. So my man, Bob Hill, pastor from Texas is like, it's all of the above. Yeah, the mink urine, making them go wild. Also, this place is dummy haunted. It's ghost minks. It's go. It's it's the ghost of the minks, the vengeful mink spirits. Oh my god, it's it, it's again, we're back to Scooby-Doo, you know? We're back, we're back to Scooby-Doo. We're back to Scooby-Doo. There's just this weird substance that's weirdly glowing, and everyone's like, oh, it's ghost ectoplasm, and yeah. someone's like, oh, this ectoplasm smells eerily of mink <laughs> So, I mean, that's it, and, you know, it's still a mystery, and what the other mystery is, is that somehow people still are walking their dogs in this area off-leash. Oh, right. Because this yeah, is like an area okay. where people have well-trained dogs, so I don't understand why you wouldn't like okay maybe we do know why maybe we don't either way we're not doing anything about the minks so as far as i know there's still dogs jumping off of this bridge there's just very very self-absorbed dog owners that see the sign that says please keep your dog on a leash there's a haunted bridge up ahead and your dog might jump off and this this really smug dog owner just says no oh, no not my dog you think my <laughs> dog would jump off you think my dog would bite at the scent of dog urine of mink urine sorry of course not you think freaking maximilian over here is going to try that stuff never not my dog not me not never and then the dog just jumps off and dies immediately. all right tell me tell me now luis can lucho go on the mink urine bridge will lucho make it across the mink urine bridge uh, for those of you who don't know lucho is a dog of mine that has since passed away and you know what kurt i like to think that he crossed the mink urine bridge off to a better place <laughs> <laughs> He's on he the crossed, other side of the mink urine bridge now. He crossed the mink <laughs> urine bridge to salvation. <laughs> yes. Oh, Lucho. I believe it. But no, no I'm I'm not saying, I mean, you're saying like people are ignoring the sign. No, there's not even a sign. Like it's, no, it's allowed to have your dog off leash in this area. <laughs> And they're not even, I guess people know, but basically all that's been done is they're like, hey, you guys notice that there's like a waterfall of dogs going over this bridge. And then there's about, you know, 30 years or so where off and on people are trying to figure it out. And they're like, it's probably mink urine. And then that's it. That Nothing. Let the dog waterfall continue. So strange. You know? Yeah, let it let it all hang out. I don't really have any more. I mean, that's the end of the story there. Both of these stories, you know, there's not there's not a real nice bow on the end of them. It's kind of just like and and that's it. So you know, I hate to I hate to leave you on a ledge here, but I got no solution for the dog on the ledge on the ledge of the mink urine bridge. On the ledge of the mink urine bridge. What if we kissed on the mink urine bridge? <laughs> <laughs> boy oh boy, am I about to jump? It's when the when the voices in my head become the voices outside my head. I'll talk you down from the mink urine bridge, Luis. No. Oh, no. Into my arms. <laughs> Spray some mink urine on yourself. And when I say talk you down, I mean like you're on you're on the edge and I'm at the bottom with a puddle of mink urine. Like, jump. <laughs> Do it. Come down here. Right. <laughs> I guess it's time, Kurt, for our, our favorite part of this podcast, which is deliberation. deliberation. All right, Kurt, remind me of the two stories, please. Yes, I told you about Amé Germain, our inventive little French girl who patented a telescope and made some important camera slash projector innovations and allegedly had her ideas stolen by the Lumiere brothers. Mm -hmm. And then I told you about the Overton Bridge, which may be possessed by a demon, may mm. be haunted, or may be riddled with mink urine. There is no telling or all three you never know 
off. Maybe. What do you think, Luis? Oh, man. Well, yeah, I like these. Like you said, they're both Scooby-Doo mysteries. This is a Scooby-Doo mm-hmm. episode. We're spooky boys today. Uh, I really enjoy both. When it comes to the second story, you have this nice tendency of telling folk tales, and I really enjoy it. I think it's it's your, your hometown speaking, flowing through you. But this is such like a nice classic folk tale from any town. Like any town has their forbidden bridge or, or their forbidden equivalent <laughs> of something else, right? Like you don't go here at noon or else. It's it's one of the things that's like very innately human to have a bridge that may have a troll under it and you're not sure about it. Mm-hmm. That's like, mm-hmm. as long as there have been humans, there's been people who are like, that bridge got a troll under it and I know exactly it. <laughs> exactly it. So it, like you said, it's a very, it's a very human thing mm-hmm. um, to, to do this. So, so I can, I can imagine this being built up. However, all this said, Curtis, I know that since you do know a bunch of these folk stories, you know the tropes of a good folk story. True. And that's what's that's what's kind of surprising me in this whole thing. Like, I know that mm-hmm. you would be able to tell a good folk story if you needed it to. Mm-hmm. But I also know, with regards of the other story, mm-hmm. that you do have great existing knowledge of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. I knew this was going to come up because I one time I had a story that just had two French characters in it. And you were like, I'm all over it this It has boy. to be it. The yeah, French it has connection. to be it. And you know what? Uh, although you've played me before, the new not the French connection, the New Orleans connection to this whole thing Mm -hmm. this is this is this seems like such a niche folk story like something that you just know if you know about new orleans or grew up around that area by the way not not to mention my camera connection since i work in film that's true kurt does do that i've actually got the story at both ends he knows he knows the 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 24 frames lifestyle (laughs) now or sorry 32 i don't know which one you'd like (laughs) but yeah, this is this is interesting and, and I feel like that could potentially be a red herring, Kurt. However, I also think that you would have a lot of fun finding equivalents for uh, Mardi Gras groups, mm. <laughs> you know? Like, I feel like that that would be really fun. Like, you, you have this group of Mardi Gras organizations, and then you say, okay, hold on, what can I pair this with? The the Mardi the Mardi Gras organization's minigame is independent of the stories, regardless of, of which stories are true <laughs> or false. I did not lie to you about the names of any Mardi Gras organizations, nor the names of any groups from George R. R. Martin's The Song of Fire nice all right kurt well you're just making this just a little to bit twist more... the knife a little bit yeah seriously now <laughs> I, now i really don't know if you're driving me wrong, out down the wrong path now you just have but... to like process that there's like the knights of momus out there and stuff exactly. while you're trying to think of this <laughs> the knights of and, and on on one part of my brain i just have knights of momus floating around the other part of my brain is just mink urine so i don't know how <laughs> it's, I'm going it's a to real manage. stew in there i'll tell you that it's just it's, all mink urine and knights of momus seriously, all the way down this, this stew that's going up in my in my noggin is, is is oozing out my ears and it doesn't smell nice <laughs> but with all of that kurt i i'm afraid I'm, I'm going to go with the easy answer again i mentioned occam's racer earlier in this episode mm-hmm. and i'm going to stick with it so i think the new orleans ame story is indeed the real story final answer all right ame our girl ame labadou germaine cadeau just mm. I'll get all the all the silent mm. French consonants in there. Laba daba do is a creation of my imagination. She is <gasps> not real. No, 
girl. Oh, it feels so good to get this one. Oh, oh. man, that's I put so much oh. in that store. Because no. you're right, I got a lot of New Orleans knowledge, but it exceeded even my knowledge. I mentioned oh. earlier my New Orleans native friend. I had to ask her so, so much about debutante life and New Orleans traditions. But no, like I said, the Mardi Gras organizations are real. You know, no more slander to the Lumiere brothers. They invented the first video camera. Yeah, as far I was as I know, about to say, because I feel like this this would have been like, why would like, like in my brain, I was just thinking, why would you bring in the Lumiere brothers? You know, I know like, why what, would I? Because I know how to lie to you, Luis. Because we're on episode 26, 25, whatever, and I'm I'm getting I'm getting a little better here at least. I got I've got one back now. <laughs> I was just like, what? Why did that? What did my boys, the Lumiere, have to do with this whole thing? Seriously, and and and. Oh, I don't know, Kurt. I'm just angry. <laughs> I know. Well, the the thing about that story is it's got so much whiplash in it because it's like, okay, we're in the American Civil War. No, we're in Paris. No, we're in debutante life. No, she's an inventor. No, the Lumiere brothers are going to do something. No, we're in 1993. So I feel like there's just so much to keep up with of like... You keep thinking this is where the story is going to go and then it goes somewhere completely different that it does not give you any time to think about which of these details are true and which are false. Also, I think having a story in which they call into question like the validity of the story itself, just like that yeah. level of meta probably <laughs> really mess with your brain. But do you want to talk about the Overton Bridge? The poor dogs, 650 of the them. The mink urine is real. The mink urine is The mink is urine, real, urine could be real. It could be Damn the it. mink urine. And I should have smelled this mink urine and just like the dogs, I should have followed that scent off of the bridge to the truth. You should have. And does it make you happy to know that Bob Hill, original pastor from Texas, who's like, there's mink urine and ghosts in these woods, is is real and lives in this house? Yeah, that, that, the thing what, what makes me makes me <laughs> find that story so much funnier is how, what, this belonged to a Scottish lord and now it yeah. belongs to a Texas man? Yeah. <laughs> like, that's, that's incredible. That's amazing. Yeah, that's just such a weird cameo at the end that he's like, it's mink and I've seen it before. <laughs> gotta trust He's probably me. Not that I'm familiar with it. Yeah, this, I got the taste of mink urine and I know what it's like. <laughs> yeah, so that's so that's very sad for for the dogs. I genuinely I wish someone would do something about that cuz like just put up a sign to keep your dog on a leash or something. At least yeah. the 50 feet it seems like the majority of them survive the fall and even hopefully without much injury. So that's good, but it's weird. And I'm glad you you brought up my dead dog Kurt because th that dead dog was uh, surprisingly smarter than all of us. None of us knew it cuz he put on this facade of being the dumbest living being alive. However, my dead dog, I feel like, would decipher if a demon was around. Lucho had knowledge of the spirit world, <laughs> which that knowledge paralyzed him, and so he seemed like he was just always trapped, but really he's, like, dealing with knowledge that no mortal being should have. Uh, a quick context on my dead dog, he did have a lazy eye that looked absolutely to the far left of him. So no, it's his spirit plane eye. It's his spirit plane eye. He's got one eye looking forward to the real world and the other one looking to the underworld <laughs> seriously the other eye is watching able, death like, stared it straight in the eye and not <laughs> flinching <laughs> unblinking unblinking to, to death itself my dead dog is oh we love lucho we'll post we'll post a picture of lucho too we'll post oh, a picture my of lucho. stupid dead dog <laughs> yes
So what does that bring our score to now, Luis? I'm very happy to get that one because I got to say the the avalanche was starting. I could see the game slipping away from me, but now I think we're a little closer. I believe we're back to tied, Curtis. I was up ahead a little bit, three to two, and now we are three even. Three to two doesn't sound like much, but it's pretty hard for one of us to actually successfully fool the other. It seems a lot lot easier to be the guesser than the one telling the story. Uh, But last episode, you fooled me, so I I was worried I was in for it. I had to pull out all the stops on a major main Labadoo cadeau. If you want to hear more stories and we promise not to talk about Mink Urine anymore, feel free to check us out. And if you enjoyed what you heard, tell your friends and family about it. We'll post the pictures from the episode on our social media. That's going to be on Instagram at Unbelievable Pod and Twitter at Unbelievable PC. Thank you everyone for listening. And just before we go, Luis, if your mom asks you if you jump off a bridge, if your friends are doing it, what are you going to tell her? I'm going to ask her if there's mink urine, mom. Good boy. All right, everyone, (laughs) remember that. Thank you and see you next time. (laughs) Bye.